each participant in that pilot experiment saved 11 hours per month, so about two and a half work weeks per year, just by eliminating those small unproductive meetings and going through this 48-hour activity. More than 40% of employees say that they're choosing their next employer in part based on whether that employer has adopted this human-centric AI approach. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. Leaders in particular in organizations face right now is to manage this fear and transition from their employees seeing AI as a threat to viewing it as a tool that can really amplify their skill sets. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Rebecca Hintz, a Stanford PhD who heads up the Work Innovation Lab, a think tank for a better world of work, by Asana, the world's leading work management company with a market cap of over $4 billion. Rebecca studies remote work and AI and was the recipient of the Stanford Interdisciplinary Graduate Fellowship, considered one of the highest honors given to doctoral students. Her research and insights have appeared in publications like Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Today, we'll discuss how meeting Doomsday helped Asana save thousands of hours of productive time, neuroscience and AI, the gaps for organizational adoption of AI, how AI will supercharge teams, and why we need less tech instead of more. So let's dive in. Hey, Rebecca, thanks so much for being on. Great to have you. Thanks so much, Dan. I'm a big fan of yours and the podcast, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. And I know you just came back from London where you did a conference on neuroscience and AI. Can you share a little bit about what you presented and like what was that conversation about? Sure. So I, this was a talk I, I had the pleasure of doing with uh, Shibby Jervis, who's an amazing thought leader over in London and really globally now. And we had a conversation around neuroscience and technology, and in particular, neuroscience and AI. And mm-hmm. I've long been fascinated by the psychology of technology. And I think neuroscience in general can help us explain a lot about how technology is adopted, whether it's embraced by workers and employees. I think most important, neuroscience can help us understand humans' natural resistance to change and change in technology. I've given this example a few times, but when we look at the history of technology, we see time and time again with every major technological leap, we see fear, we see uncertainty, we see resistance. Uh, When the telephone was first introduced, people thought it was capable of transmitting evil spirits. And when electricity was first introduced, people thought it could cause internal human combustion. And so we see this fear and we see this uncertainty in our research with AI as well. And I think the resistance, it stems from fear of the unknown. It stems from fear of replacement or obsolescence. Mm. And what neuroscience shows us is that fear is this natural brain response to a perceived threat. And Mm. the challenge that leaders in particular and organizations face right now is to manage this fear and transition from their employees seeing AI as a threat to viewing it as a tool that can really amplify their skill sets. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we all see the potential benefits of AI and the way that AI could hopefully make work better. 
But then there is that resistance and there is that fear. And so when you talk about neuroscience, that means people putting people into MRI machines while they're on their laptop doing AI work. Like, what does, what does that look like? No, I think, I mean, it can. And there's been some fascinating work by many different companies in terms of using using brain imagery to understand how we respond to different interventions and changes. But I think most fundamentally, it's about using our knowledge of what happens when people are put into new environments to understand mm. natural resistance to, to change. I think I see it all the time right now, especially with AI, that there is a halo effect associated with AI, and for good reason. We're seeing a lot of promise, a lot of potential around the technology, mm. but what we see in organizations is significant gaps in terms of how executives are perceiving the technology versus how individual contributors are interpreting the technology and viewing its impact on their, their workflows and their day-to-day -day work. And I think using neuroscience as a lens to understand that mm -hmm. there is fear, there is uncertainty, there is anxiety, especially at those lower levels of the organization. We know this is natural. We know that we can't you know, shove it under the rug. We need to address it and we need to help our employees move from that place of fear to a place of excitement and optimism. And that requires <clears throat> hard work. It requires change management. And I think it's it's really helpful to look back at the history of technology and know that mm -hmm. this is natural and we need to do the work to be able to fully get that organizational level adoption of AI, which we know will be critical to harnessing its, its full potential. Yeah, yeah. And so you were saying that senior leaders and other people in the organization, they look at it differently? Like what are some of the differences that you, that you see? So we see three key gaps in particular. The first one we call an optimism gap. So when we ask mm. senior executives, how optimistic are you about AI? How likely do you think AI is going to help you reach your company goals? executives are much more likely to see the promise and potential in AI compared to mm. individual contributors. The second gap we see we call a transparency gap. And this one I think is, is really interesting and important. When we ask executives whether they've been transparent in terms of how they're using AI and how they're bringing AI into their organization, executives are much more likely to say that they've been transparent compared to mm. individual contributors say. And then the third gap, which I also think is critical right now, is what we call a resource gap. So when we ask executives how much training or how much learning and development they've allocated towards AI and whether they're truly mm. offering that training to employees, they're much more likely to say yes compared to individual contributors. And so... I think these disconnects are pretty startling to see, especially when we look at the resource gap, we see about a quarter of executives say that their organization offers training and learning and development around AI. We see only 11% of individual contributors agree with that sentiment. And so it's a significant wow. gap across these three different dimensions mm. that it's going to be critical to the change management approach and to effectively harnessing that, that full potential that AI can offer. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
what are some ways that you see AI being integrated into companies right now? And maybe also interesting, like I'm really interested in, okay, what is it now? And you're obviously way closer to this than most people. Like, what do you kind of foresee for maybe like one, three and five years into the future um, when it comes to AI in the workplace? I know it's like a crazy big question, but... (laughs) It's it's a big question, but I think it's interesting because when we look at right now and what we see hmm. AI being used for and how we see it being adopted, we see that it's rather predictable in terms of the use cases that employees are gravitating towards. So we see three hmm. top the list in our research, admin tasks, content production, and data analysis. And what's common about those three use cases is they all are very much oriented around boosting individual productivity and boosting Mm -hmm. in the short term. And I think that makes sense, especially in a world today where productivity is under a microscope, humans are more likely to gravitate towards those short-term use cases where there's quick wins in terms of boosting their individual productivity. Hmm. I think that when we look to the future, we're going to see much more of a focus on team and organizational level productivity gains associated with AI. I think what we see in the research and what we're starting to see in some of the companies we work with is that overwhelming focus on individual level productivity can come at the cost of team level productivity and organizational level productivity. In the research, it's Mm. sometimes called the tragedy of the commons, where the collective good is is sacrificed for these individual productivity Mm. gains. And the example I, I often give is an employee can use AI to become highly productive as an individual. So they can auto-assign tasks to other people, they can delegate their work, they can send notification and pings, but that can lead to the storm of what we call collaboration overload, unmanageable demands for other people on the team. If they're not taking Mm. into account other people's level of burnout and bandwidth and priorities, And so I think what we're going to see in the years to come is vendors and organizations focus much more on the team and organizational level productivity gains, which AI has enormous potential to help us really crack in ways that we haven't been able to in the past just because of the the sheer volume of data. Hmm. That's a super interesting shift. So what are some of the ways that AI will then contribute to being more productive as a team? And do we just talk about, because I know you study this kind of stuff, right? Like, do we just talk about productivity in terms of just output? Or are we also talking about the quality of that productivity? What are we actually doing? What are we actually delivering? Are we solving a problem? What are some ways to think about that? So I think, and we, we, at the Work Innovation Lab in particular, we're pretty laser focused on collaboration as well. And so helping mm. AI has enormous potential and we're starting to, to use AI ourselves to understand what are those helpful and harmful collaboration behaviors that lead to different outcomes. So sometimes it's productivity, sometimes it's employee engagement, sometimes it's employee growth and learning and development. But I think there are several exciting potentials of AI. One is matching individuals to tasks in a way that we haven't been able to in the past. So you can imagine a world where we look at 
all employees within a team or an organization. We take into account skill sets, their career ambitions, their history of working on different tasks and with different people. And we can start to much more intelligently as new projects are are spun Mm. up put the right people on that team to execute the work most effectively. I think we were talking before we hit record about meetings and how broken meetings are. And you can imagine a world where we intelligently take into account people's level of workload, when they're most energized throughout the day, when they're in the office versus not, and start to put together Mm. much more effective and intelligent meeting calendars. And so there are whole host of different outcomes. I think when we think about collaboration too, being able to proactively tell individuals when their collaboration with other people or other teams is declining, when they might need to Mm. schedule that meeting or schedule that touch base or schedule that status update, if there's been a lag in communication, and again, start to more intelligently work with other people in a way that we haven't been able to in the past because of the sheer volume of of data. So you would get some much more helpful diagnostics, let's say, as a team leader, as a manager on, you know, is everyone really utilized to their full potential? Are they doing meaningful work? Are they doing the stuff that they want to be doing? Because that sounds almost like we're moving towards like an internal talent marketplace where, let's say, AI knows what I really love doing and spots an opportunity for me to contribute something that otherwise would have been completely unknown to me and unknown to the organization and, and make that match. Right. And there are so many factors at play. It's it's employee engagement, it's retention. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a world where, yes, assigning you to this one task might boost your productivity or might be in short-term service of the good of the company, but it might not be interesting and exciting to you. And if it's not, then mm-hmm. probably you're going to have lower engagement. You might stay at the company for a shorter period of time. And you can start to use AI to do this complex calculus that we haven't done mm-hmm. in the past. You mentioned uh, one of our uh, keywords, which is meetings. I I would love to go back on that because you actually wrote the very famous HVR article, meeting overload is a fixable problem. You're actually one of the authors of that article, right? And that was widely shared, I think for good reason, because everyone hates meetings and everyone is stuck in too many meetings. What are some of the ways that whether it's AI or maybe just thinking differently about meetings, what are some of the ways that we can we can fix meetings and all have more time to do actual work, meaningful work? Sure. So, so a bit of background on on that that article. So, I wrote that in collaboration with one of my mentors, Bob Sutton at Stanford, and. It was based on a couple different interventions that we led at the Work Innovation Lab, one of which we called Meeting Doomsday. Meeting Doomsday, yes. Meeting Doomsday was, it started as a pilot experiment, a small team at Asana. This was happening throughout the pandemic when we were seeing people were in more meetings, they were in longer meetings, their calendars were filled up by meetings that they thought maybe could be performed and executed more effectively. And so we Mm -hmm. asked this small team to delete all their small recurring meetings 
from their calendar for 48 hours. And then after that 48 hours had elapsed, we invited them to re-add the meetings back to their calendar, but do so in the way that they thought was going to be most valuable. So they could change mm. the length, they could change the cadence, they could change the number of attendees, they could delete them entirely. Yeah. This was incredibly successful beyond our expectations for sure. So each participant in that pilot experiment saved 11 hours per month. So about two and a half work weeks per year, just by eliminating those small unproductive meetings and going through this 48 hour activity. So shocking in terms of the the time savings gained back. And Bob and I are both really adamant about the fact that meeting efficiency is important, but it's important because it enables us to have more space to do the things at work that should be more inefficient. So creative thinking, brainstorming, Mm. developing relationships with each other, with our customers. These are the things that we want to make space for. And these are the things that shouldn't be highly efficient. But meetings should, in general, be, be efficient. And they're broken in organizations today. They're ubiquitously considered a time sink. They are ubiquitously considered to come at the cost of deep thinking and creative thinking and collaboration. And it's an opportunity, especially with AI now, to challenge some of our core assumptions about when we need to meet, why we need to meet, and rethink the, yeah. the status quo. So what are some recommendations that you would give either to individuals, to managers, maybe to company leaders? Like, how should we look at meetings? Should we all do this meeting doomsday and get a better schedule? I've gone through so many meeting interventions and studied so many meeting interventions. And the common one is the meeting audit, right? To take an audit of your calendar, look at which meetings are effective, which are not, and make some sort of judgment call incrementally in terms of which meetings you want to change. And we've done this study where it doesn't lead to the same impacts of this meeting doomsday because Mm. it doesn't fundamentally challenge our core assumptions about how meetings happen. And so I do think, and we've done it, we've just finished a study where we took a similar approach to tech stacks and doing a doomsday on Mm. tech stacks. And this type of complete reset, a fresh start, per se, does encourage this healthy behavioral change. Bob Sutton has studied what he calls the subtraction mindset quite extensively. This idea that as humans, we're naturally inclined for addition. We're inclined, especially in a workplace setting, to add meetings, add process. Yes, some problem occurs. And so we need new software. We need a new meeting. We need a new, right? Yeah. And in particular, meetings and technology are Mm. panaceas for so many different (laughs) things. And this healthy behavioral change of let's do a reset Mm. 48 hours, it's going to do so much more help within the organization than than harm. And it can be scary, Mm. it can be uncertain, but there's no better way in my experience to jolt people out of that status quo and encourage that mindset shift. And then I think... There's real value in no meeting days as well. We see from the research Mm. that no meeting days consistently have positive impact across a whole diverse set of factors for for organizations. I think they're the common 
skeleton foundations of meetings. You need an agenda, you need to have follow-ups. But I think fundamentally doing a meeting doomsday every six months or every year is an incredibly helpful practice, if nothing else, then to encourage that mindset shift that we need to be consistently challenging the status quo and rethinking some of these work practices that we know are broken and equated. I think another another good example of this is meetings so often default to weekly cadence. They so often default to 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And it's so arbitrary, the, the time of length mm-hmm. and the cadence. And when we look at our research, we saw that when people participated in the meeting doomsday, they often changed the length of meetings to be unconventional lengths. So they changed 30 Mm. minute meetings to be 25 minute meetings. They changed weekly meetings to be monthly meetings or every six weeks. And it encourages us to also not just default to what our calendars project in terms of what should be a meeting, but think consciously about what is the content of the meeting, who's involved, what's the outcome, and what's the most appropriate length and cadence for those different factors. Yeah, definitely. That's why I love when Microsoft makes these small changes, or we use Google, make these small changes about setting the default value of a meeting to 25 minutes they probably impact more people than anything, right? If, if they can just kind of like get people into that right behavior. I also really love that you said jolt people out of behavior. And I love that you use the word intervention because we can theoretically always just think about auditing our meetings. Do we still need them? But it's very theoretical. I like that kind of idea of like, we're going to do an intervention. You're going to start with no meetings and then maybe build them back, but you're going to look at them very differently. And then you just mentioned something about a similar research study around the tech stack and how we also often try and get new technology in to solve problems. Can you share more about that research? I don't know, I don't know if it's public, but that sounds really interesting. Sure. So we, we did just publish a HBR on, on this as well. And it was done in collaboration with Bob Sutton, as well as a fantastic professor at uh, UC Santa Barbara, Paul Leonardi, mm. as well as in collaboration with AWS, Amazon Web Services. So it was largely inspired by meeting doomsday. We thought, can we apply this subtraction mindset to tech stocks? And we see, especially throughout the pandemic, a ballooning of tech stacks within organizations. And I think that was, again, this example of we lost in many cases physical connection to people. We lost in many cases the opportunity to have one-on-one interactions with, with people in person. And so the natural response for many organizations was to invest in more technology and in particular more collaboration tools. And we see so much context switching, so much collaboration overload in organizations today. We were trying to better understand this problem and what organizations can do to help Mm. their employees reduce collaboration overload. And so it was a group of Asana employees and Amazon employees where we asked them, we had them in two different groups, but essentially we asked everyone within the experiment or intervention to stop using a certain number of their core collaboration technologies for two weeks, I believe. So we asked them to stop using a certain number of their technologies. 
They had to log any time they deviated from their approved tech stack. Mm. And we saw significant changes to how people worked. And we framed the article mm. in terms of there was good news, but also there was bad news. The good news was that people in general became more mindful of this technology overload. They reflected and we had them complete surveys throughout the experiment, mm. consistently reflected on the value of this type of intervention and truly rethinking all the different technologies they use at work. We also saw that more than half of our participants ended up saying that they could eliminate one or more collaboration technologies mm. from their core tech stack by the end. So in just two weeks, it's pretty significant changes. But the bad news was we measured something, and this is inspired by Professor Leonardi's work, we measured something that we call digital exhaustion. So this is how mm. exhausted do the technologies you use at work make you feel? And what was surprising to us is we saw that for our participants, digital exhaustion actually increased throughout the study. And as we were pairing this finding with the survey data, we realized what was happening. And that was that as people were asked to reflect more deeply on the technologies they use at work each day, each week, they became more aware of just how exhausting that context switching is and that use of so many different technologies and the guesswork that goes into understanding mm. what work to do and which technologies. And so we saw their digital exhaustion increase as well because there was this recognition, unlike the meeting work, that interventions related to technology are need to be much more tops down because there's so much systematic nature when it comes to technology mm. and technologies are so interdependent my technology use is interdependent on what my customers use what my direct team uses what my cross-functional mm. team uses and in contrast to meetings, which are still pretty interdependent, but not as much as technology, where there is these deep-seated histories that need to be taken into account. And so one of the reasons why digital exhaustion increased as well was because there was this recognition that the employees themselves could not enact all the change they wanted to in terms of rethinking their tech stack and reconfiguring it. It really did require uh. that team leader or executive level intervention. And so when we think about the implications, it's definitely mm. that leaders need to play a more proactive, more active role in helping their organization understand what is that ideal tech stack and when is it mm. becoming too big, doing a tech audit, a tech reset every six months, just as you might do for meetings can be a really healthy, mm. healthy practice. So Rebecca, so many amazing uh, research findings and so applicable, like they're so immediately applicable on the way that we work. Now, I know that you guys also recently launched a work innovation score. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. And again, what can we learn from that in, in how we do work? Sure. Thank you. So the work innovation score, it was inspired by this recognition that executives right now have an extreme 
hunger for more visibility into how work Mm. is happening. We ran a survey about a month ago looking at what are those North Star metrics that matter most to executive leaders today and the common ones top the list you know it's it's productivity it's innovation it's employee engagement but when you ask the same executives whether they actively measure and track those north stars there's a significant gap and so a lot of the work innovation score was inspired by the opportunity to give leaders and give organizations more visibility into how work is happening and whether that work is contributing to positive Mm. outcomes. And so the Work Innovation Lab, we launched about a month ago. The development of the score was led by an individual on my team, uh, Dr. Mark Hoffman, who used to be a Stanford professor and is skilled in understanding the the sociology of work and organizational network behavior and how people within organizations collaborate. So this work innovation score we developed is a score out of a possible 100. It's powered by mm. AI, by neural networks. So we've we've done extensive research in terms of understanding what are those core predictors of innovation within organizations. So this, mm. this specific score is designed to assess a company's propensity for innovation based on how they're collaborating and how they're collaborating on Asana. And so Mm. what we find is that there are four key drivers of innovation within companies. The first is cohesion. So how well your employees are working together. Velocity is a measure of how quickly ideas and work flow through the organization. Mm. Resilience, which I'm hearing top of mind for, for executives today, is essentially a measure of how stable or how robust is your organization as different people switch teams, as teams are disbanded, or as people leave the organization? Mm. How quickly mm. can work pick up? How quickly does work break down in those instances? And then the fourth one, which we've, we've spoken about, is capacity. So how much mm. capacity or bandwidth do your employees have to do their best and most important work? And so we see that those four drivers matter most for innovation, and we're able to use those drivers to understand and assess a company's potential for innovation and package it as this work innovation score. Just to close out, like any final thought on the future of work? So you're studying this very up close, maybe more than anyone else. What is something that you wish for when it comes to work in the future? I think there are a couple of things. One, we've talked quite a bit about AI, and I think one of my hopes and wishes for AI is related to this concept that is being called human-centric AI or human-centered AI, this idea that as we bring AI into our organizations, we can't just think of it as a technology that we're adopting and rolling out to employees. We really need to position it in a way that is in service of humans and helping mm. amplify our potential as, as humans. One of the most interesting findings from our AI-specific research is we see right now that more than 40% of employees say that they're choosing their next employer in 
part based on whether that employer has adopted this human-centric AI approach. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. Incredible. It's incredible and really promising because we know that the companies that don't adopt that human-centric approach mm. are going to be at a disadvantage in terms of talent recruiting and retention. And mm. so mm. my hope is that we see AI as first and foremost an opportunity to amplify and augment human potential. And as we advance the AI technologically, I think the true measure of progress should be how well those innovations and that advancement mm. supports and, and augments human potential and not only building smarter machines, but also creating work environments that augment our abilities as, as humans and our catalysts for human growth and learning and, and well-being. And then I think more generally, a lot of our, our research at the Work Innovation Lab focuses on challenging the status quo and rethinking some of these core aspects of work that we know are broken, we know are antiquated, mm. we know are outdated. And so my hope is that as we continue this journey, organizations continue to challenge the status quo in terms of how work happens and be bold, even if it's on a small scale, even if it's taking 20 employees and testing what would the world look like, the work world look yeah. like if we fundamentally rethink some of these practices that we rely on without second guessing them. I love that. Be bold and challenge the status quo. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so much for being on. This was amazing. Thanks so much, Dan. I, I love the conversation. That was Rebecca Hinz, a Stanford PhD who heads the Work Innovation Lab by Asana, a think tank for a better world of work. Here are the lessons to apply today. Number one, neuroscience and AI. Learning from neuroscience, we know that people fear what they don't understand, and AI is new and unknown, causing fear of being replaced. Leaders must shift this perspective to highlight AI's potential benefits, creating optimism and excitement. Number two, the three gaps for organizational adoption of AI. According to Rebecca's research, executives and individual contributors view technology differently with three main gaps that leaders must close. Number one, the optimism gap. Executives have higher expectations for AI. Number two, the transparency gap. Executives think that they are more transparent about AI than they actually are. And three, the resource gap. Fewer individual contributors receive AI training than executives claim. The next insight is about AI shifting from individual productivity to team results. Because today AI is mostly used for admin tasks, content production and data analysis. However, focusing on individual productivity over team productivity can lead to collaboration overload. In the future, AI will allocate work to individuals intelligently, keeping them engaged and motivated to stay in their jobs. Insight 4. Solving the meeting overload problem. In Asana's Meeting Doomsday, participants deleted all repeating meetings before adding them back, saving up to two and a half work weeks per year and freeing up time for more important things like creative thinking and building relationships. And insight number five is about tech. And it's the same thing. Less is more. Just like with meetings, Rebecca's latest study suggests that we use too many tech platforms, which wastes our time due to switching costs. 
To fix this, focus on doing less, not more, and intervene to encourage change. And the last insight is about the innovation score. Rebecca's Work Innovation Lab uses AI and data from Asana to predict a company's innovation success. They found that the four main predictors are cohesion, velocity, resilience, and capacity. And finally, a call to action from Rebecca. Work needs to change, so be bold. Grab a couple of people and test better ways of working. That's it for today. Please join me again in two weeks for the last episode of this year. And it's going to be a banger as I'm discussing company culture with the incredible founder of Great Mondays, Josh Levine.